For those of you who don't know me, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. Thank you so much for coming and being with us today. And I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, if you have them. If you don't, don't worry, because it will come up on the screen. But if you do have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. We are presently in a series at this church on the book of Exodus, and we've seen some pretty incredible things on the way towards chapter 25. We've seen how God drew his people from slavery from Egypt, how he rescued his own people from Pharaoh and Egypt through plagues and ultimately through the Red Sea. We've seen how he's provided for them in the wilderness with manna and water from the rock and commandments to live by, commandments that he gives ultimately his people as a gift to help them, explaining this is how it's going to go well for you in your life. And then we've seen how he's given them a covenant, that if they obey him, then he will be their God, he will be with them, and they will be a holy people, a royal priesthood, and a treasured possession before him, and the weight of that covenant is on him, that he will do this, I will keep you, Israel. But as we catch up with them in chapter 25, there is still something missing for them. There's still something lacking. And in chapters 25 to 31, we then look at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a pretty incredible thing, as I trust we'll see today. And so if you want a title for this message, I've called it Finding Our Way Home. And we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 22 of chapter 25. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take from me a contribution From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat 
from between the cherubim that are on the ark are the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you a commandment for the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, I love your word. And Lord, I pray that in the next 40 minutes that you would bring it alive in our eyes. Lord, you would do what no preacher can ever do. And we can talk, but you can change hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what you can only do well. Bless this preaching of the word by your grace. Amen. You know, if we were to interview a hundred people this morning, if we were to go out here and interview maybe some people in the church and some people outside of the church and ask them, what do you think personally is your greatest need right now? I'm sure we'd get many wide and varied responses from different people. I'm sure some people probably say, you know what, thanks for asking, interesting question. What is my personal greatest need? Well, my personal greatest need right now is a bigger paycheck. If I could just earn more money, I could get a house, I think I'd be a bit more secure, I think I'd be a bit more content, it would probably help me an awful lot. Somebody else might say, well, I think my greatest need right now is health. If I could just be healthy, if I could just be completely healed, I think I'd be completely content in my life. I'd be completely fulfilled in all things. Somebody else might say family. You know, if my marriage would just be healthy, I think I'd be pretty sweet. I'd probably be happy every day. Or I wish my kids could just be obedient kids. If they would just behave, I think my life would be fine, but they won't behave. And so the one thing I really need is for them to behave. Somebody else might say, to be honest, my greatest need, I think, is for family. I'm alone. I want to get married. I want to have kids. That isn't what's been provided for me at the minute. It's difficult. And somebody else might say, well, I think my greatest need is a job. You know, I have a job, but I just hate my job. If I just had a better job, I think I'd be completely fulfilled in my life. My life would be complete. But I don't. My job sucks, and so I could really do with a different one. That is my greatest need. And yet the Bible would teach us that our greatest need, more than anything else, is for the presence of God himself. The Bible would teach that the one thing you need is to be in the presence of God and encounter the King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 16, verse 11 it says, for in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Man's greatest need is to find our way back to God, to be in his presence where there is joy and where there are pleasures forevermore. That is what the Bible explains is our greatest need. And the thing that I love then about the tabernacle is the tabernacle is a building designed by God to teach us our way home. It's a building that's been put together and designed by God to teach us our way back into his presence, our way back to being with him, our way back to being with the King of kings and Lord of lords. For at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, and the tabernacle teaches us how to get there, how to get home, how to be with God. Mr. M. R. Dehan in his book, The Tabernacle, says the following. He says, The only building ever constructed upon this earth, which was perfect from its very beginning and outset in every detail, and never again needed attention, addition, or alteration, was the Tabernacle of God. The blueprint, the pattern, and the plan. 
The design and all its specifications were minutely made in heaven, committed unto Moses for the children of Israel while he was on the mountain, shortly after their deliverance from Egypt. Every single detail was designed by Almighty God. Every part had a prophetic, redemptive, and symbolic significance. For there is no portion of Scripture richer in meaning, more perfect in its teaching of the plan of redemption, than this divinely designed building. God himself was the architect, and every detail points to some aspect of the character and work of the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And in its complete form, it is probably the most comprehensive, detailed revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. The tabernacle is a building designed by God to teach us our way home, to teach us our way back into his presence. For man's greatest need is the presence of God and the tabernacle teaches us our way to get back to that presence. So I have two points this morning and then we're going to baptize some people. Point one, the tabernacle explained. If we don't understand the tabernacle, we're going to be in a world of hurt and you're just going to be like, what in the world is he on about? We need to actually understand the tabernacle otherwise it would not make sense. And then number two, the tabernacle applied. It does apply to you. It applies to every person in this room. So number one, the tabernacle explains. You know, down through the millennia, there have been many great buildings. Taj Mahal, the pyramids, the Empire State Building, the list goes on. There have been many buildings in our world. There have been incredible work of art, incredible works of architecture, but there's been no building greater ever to exist in the world than the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the only building that has been built on the earth that was actually designed completely by God. Moses has been up on the mountain with God for 40 days. What has he been doing? Just hanging out? Well, in part, he's been getting instructions from God as to how to build this tabernacle. When he goes down, teach the people how to do this. I'm going to design it for you. I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to explain to you exactly what I need it to look like, be made out of. So Moses, listen up, take notes. It would be helpful. I'm going to explain to you what's needed. And God lays out for him the blueprint of the tabernacle itself. And God is clearly going to provide for the tabernacle. You remember, if you've been around for Sovereign Grace for a while, that before the people of God come through the Red Sea, what do they do on the last night? They do the lamb thing. Yes, what else do they do? They plunder Egypt. God says, go to Egypt and take all their silver and their gold and their fine twine and all that. You think, why? Are they just going to be rich? No. They're going to build a tabernacle. God has a building for them that he wants them to build. And so it's a building designed by God. It's a building that's been provided for by God. And it is a building laden with symbolism. Laden with symbolism of who God is. And accordingly laden with symbolism of how we can, in our humanity, find our way home. There's three symbols then that I want you to understand if we're going to understand the tabernacle First of all, the symbolism of holiness. The symbolism of the holiness and otherness of God. I mean, there is no doubt that we serve a wonderfully holy God. A God who is above us in all things, who is transcendent, who is supreme and majestic and sovereign and overall in a way that none of us are. And the tabernacle in God's own house, we are going to be examining God's digs today. 
The place where verse 8 tells us he will dwell. His house is representative of who he is. And so it shouldn't surprise us to find this house screams of symbolism that I am holy. And when you examine the tabernacle, that's what it does. Now, some of you may be visual learners like me. I read this and I think, wonderful, what does it look like? I can help you with that. I have a slide for you which might explain. I've got two slides all together. This is the first one. This is like an overhead view of what the tabernacle would look like. You can see around the edge is a rectangular courtyard. This is where this is the outer courts, if you will. There's no roof over this. It's just an outer courts. It's a tent around the edge, as you will. It's 46 meters by 23 meters, which is effectively the quarter of a soccer pitch. It's marked off by 2.3 meter curtains. The 60 panels altogether that mark off this outer court. And this outer court would be a place that if you were an Israelite, you could all go. You'd go through the curtains to the east. You would probably make offerings at the bronze altar. You would cleanse yourself at the bronze basin. Everybody would come here in some form or other to come into the presence of God. This is everybody was invited into the outer courts. And then you see there's a rectangle in the middle. Well, this is known as the tent of meeting. This is a place that had walls, but also a roof. And so you see, first of all, if you went through another curtain, which you wouldn't do because you're not actually priests, only priests could go into that holy place. They would go through a curtain and they would go into an area that's nine and a half meters by four and a half meters. Only the priest could go in and in there, there was a branch lampstand, a table of showbread and an altar of incense, all described by the Lord in the chapters to come. And then there's a holy of holies, right in the end there on the left. A cube, four and a half meters by four and a half meters by four and a half meters. So I'm not quite sure who drew that, but I'm not sure it's that cubal on that picture. But it is definitely a cube. And only the great high priest would get to go in there. Once a year they would get to go in. And that great high priest then would encounter the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that we just read about, the Ark of the Covenant, the two tablets that Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments on would be placed into the Ark. It would be golden in its entirety. And there would be two cherubim that would be put on the lid of the Ark and God's presence would dwell above that. That's what it would look like. Okay. Now if you look at the next slide, you can kind of see actually what it would look like a bit more. And you start to see in that picture that this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, was beautiful, it was ornate, it was adorned, and in all this ornateness and beauty, it was designed to point to God's holiness and majesty and splendor all the way through. And so if you examine the fabrics that are used in the building of this entire tabernacle and tent of meeting, the preciousness of the material increases as you get closer. And so in the outer courts, you know, this big pitch, the size of this room, so to speak. In the outer courts, that was just blocked off by cream and white linen. A little further in, it would be undyed goatskin. And then you get to the tabernacle curtains, and they would be made out of the most expensive wool that you could buy at the time. And then the Holy of Holy curtains were three dyed wool layers interlaced with two great cherubim. There's a particular change in the sort of white linen to the incredibly layered wool. Why? Because it was symbolic that the closer you get to God, the more holy this becomes. The more set apart he becomes. Even the colors, you'll see on the pictures there, there's a lot of purple, a lot of blue. Why? Well, purple was a sign of royalty and blue was a sign of divinity. 
And so God, as he builds his house, is explaining to everybody, I am holy. I am transcendent. I'm above and beyond you in every way. And the closer you get to me, the more my house will point you to that reality. You see it also in the metals that was used. The preciousness in the metal increases as you get closer to God himself. And so the outer courts, you have bronze, bronze altars, bronze bathing issues. And then as you get closer, you start to see silver. And then you come into the tabernacle itself, the tent of meeting, everything is gold. The closer you get to God, the preciousness of the material increases. Why? Because it is all designed to point to the holiness and majesty and splendor of God. God himself is dwelling in the Holy of Holies. The closer you get to him, the more everything around you screams of his holiness. The symbol of holiness, then, is always evident in the tabernacle. Likewise, the symbolism of Eden, something that we have to understand, otherwise the tabernacle, well, it doesn't dazzle in the way it's designed to by the Lord. And so in the tabernacle, we see the symbolism of Eden, the place where it all began, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and God, and where Adam and Eve and God dwelt in perfect unity together. See, to give you a bit of history... Eden, as we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, would have been an incredible place. It would have been a place of wonder and flourishing and beauty. You would have wanted to be there. It was incredible, architected by God himself as perfection. But the greatest blessing that Eden got mankind was that in Eden, mankind and God dwelt together. They were in one another's presence all the time. So it talks about Adam just walking in the garden with God. You know, they were just able to dwell together and be together. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of mankind, their rejection of God and his word. And the result is that mankind is banished from the garden. Mankind is pushed from the garden. God in his holiness and justice... He curses the man, he curses the woman, but the greatest curse of all is that I am no longer going to be with you. You can no longer just hang in my presence. So he pushes them from the garden and bars the garden with cherubim and a sword. He pushes them from his presence. There are many curses, but the greatest curse was that they could no longer just engage with God and walk with him in unity because they had rejected him. They had sinned before him. And God is a holy and just God, and so they had to be punished. So he removes them from his premise and bars their way back. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. But right here in Exodus chapter 25, you start to see a picture through the tabernacle of Eden restored. A way back. A way back to the garden. A way back to the presence of God. And when you examine the tabernacle alongside Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you realize there is massive symbolism going on that is uncanny if it wasn't designed by God, which it was. The tabernacle was a mini Eden. So for example, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, we see God making Eden his perfect and beautiful creation, and it's a place where he himself will dwell. So it's a place that in itself will point to his holiness and majesty and supremacy. And so we see in Genesis chapter 2 that within the Garden of Eden there is gold, there is onyx stones, and there is precious jewels aplenty. 
What do we see here in Exodus chapter 25? Gold and onyx stones and precious jewels are plenty. He's building a picture for us that this is the garden again. This is the place where I can dwell with you. In Genesis 3 verse 24, we actually read the following. After mankind had sinned, it says, He, meaning God, he drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way. Well, that's interesting. Because God told them that whenever they set up the tabernacle, the curtains always had to be facing east. Every single time you set it up, make sure this whole tabernacle faces east. Just like where they were driven from, they were pulled out the east. And then right in, as you gather through the tabernacle, as you go towards the curtains, as you enter into the presence of God, what you would see is two cherubim carefully embroidered into the curtains. Why? Because God's painting them a picture. This is Eden. This is Eden. This is where I dwell. This is your way back to me. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we see in the Garden of Eden a specific tree of life. And in Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 to 40, we see God carefully designing the golden lampstand with cups and flowers and calyxes. Why? Because it is a symbol of the tree of life. God is painting them a picture that, guys, this is your way home. You were thrown out of Eden in your sin, but there is a way back for you. The tabernacle was a mini Eden being set up by God. And so I want you to picture with me what it would have been like for the great high priest once a year to go into the tabernacle through the holy place and into the holy of holies. Imagine what it would be like because this symbolism wouldn't have been wasted on him or the priests or the people of God. Once a year on the day of atonement, the great high priest would be able to go right to the tabernacle, right into the ark of the covenant itself and encounter God himself. The people of God would gather around the tabernacle in their entirety and the great high priest would make his way in through the east curtain. And then as he walks in, he would see the bronze altar and the the bronze basin and then he would see the glory of the Lord displayed through these curtains pointing to royalty and divinity. And he would walk through the curtains and there to his left would be the lampstand which is symbolic of the tree of life. He would be aware this place is covered in gold. There are jewels aplenty here. There are onyx stones here. He would have been wearing some of them. And then right at the end of the room, he would see another set of curtains marking off the Holy of Holies, and that would be surrounded by two cherubim, the cherubim that in the Garden of Eden are blocking our way in. And now symbolically they block our way in through the curtain. And then the curtains would be opened. And he would walk in on behalf of the people of God and he would see the Ark of the Covenant and above it the place where God himself said, I will dwell here and I will talk to you from here. It's a mini Eden all over again. They'd been thrown from the garden but God's now showing them through this tabernacle the way back home, the way you can come back to me. And then there is this third thing, this symbolism of mercy. See, in Genesis chapter 3, mankind is driven out of the garden. But here in Exodus chapter 25, we're learning our way back in. 
our way back into the presence of God. But one can wonder appropriately, well, what's changed? Adam and Eve messed up. I mess up. We all mess up. Even the high priests messed up. They're not sinless people. So how is it that they're coming back into the presence of God? How is this possible? I get the symbolism of holiness. I get the symbolism of Eden. But what's different? Because we're all just like Adam and Eve. We've all rejected God from what he stands for. What's different? The mercy seat. That's what's different. Above the ark, God dwelt. In the ark was the covenant of God, the Ten Commandments. In the middle was a mercy seat. Look with me at verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. God is indeed holy. He is majestic above all beings. He's sovereign over all beings. He is totally and utterly morally perfect. And he is dwelling above the ark. And in the ark are the Ten Commandments. The grounds upon which we can approach the Lord, but the grounds that we failed in again and again and again. He is a holy God, we are a sinful people, and this ark shows that all the time. So how can we spend time with him? The mercy seat. The mercy seat in the middle. See, the priest knew that if he just went into the presence of God empty-handed, he would be struck down in a moment. He would never go to approach the Lord empty-handed. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. That's what the mercy seat was all about. Mankind has fallen. Mankind has rejected God. They had sinned before the Lord. How can they get back to this God? Well, through the mercy seat, through the blood of another. And so once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the great high priest would kill two animals in particular. First of all, he would kill a bull. And he would take blood from the bull into a bowl. And then he would kill a goat. And he would take blood from a goat in a bowl. And as he's walking through the tabernacle on his way, he's carrying these two items before the Lord. And when he goes into the Holy of Holies, he would take them. And he would take the blood of the bull and he would start to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Why? Because God helped him see, this is how you will be acceptable to me. Even as a high priest, you have sinned before me. And through the blood of a bull, you will be acceptable before me. And then he would take the goat. Having killed the goat, having prayed over the the goat, and ultimately cast all the sins of the people of Israel into the goat, he would then take the blood of the goat and start to sprinkle that on the mercy seat as well. Why? Because this is how all the nation would be made right with God. He's teaching them right here that there is a way back to me, Israel. 
There is a way back into the garden. There's a way back into my presence. It is through the sacrifice of another. And week after week and month after month and year after year, this is what was being ingrained into the people of God again and again and again. It's going to take a sacrifice. And it will be through the blood of another that you can come back into my presence. Philip Ryken says it this way in his commentary. He says, when the high priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, this showed that sin was forgiven, that atonement had been made. To put it another way, the people were covered. The sacrificial blood protected them from the wrath of God. As John McKay writes, the position of the mercy seat above the tablets of the law makes clear that what is being covered is the penalty that is demanded for the infringements of the sovereign commands of the covenant king. Thus the location of the blood was significant. Above it was God in all his holiness. Underneath was the law that exposed Israel's sin. And in between came the blood of the atoning sacrifice that covered transgression and sin, reconciling the people to God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But through the shedding of blood, there is a way home. There's a way back into the presence of God. For the presence of God, there are joys forevermore. How do I get there? The tabernacle teaches us our way home. Now you might be thinking, man, this is great news. Interesting, all I need to do now is run into the wilderness, find this tabernacle, find a priest, sacrifice something, boom, I'm right with God, joys, pleasures forevermore. This will be sweet. Well, fortunately, the tabernacle is gone. It's not there. The priests have all packed up. So what do you do? Well, that's point two, the tabernacle applied. See, it doesn't matter that there's no longer a tabernacle in the wilderness. It doesn't matter that there's not a group of priests running around that are going to be able to help you here on earth. The tabernacle teaches every one of us in the room the way home. It was always designed to. Not only teach the people of God the way home, but each and every person who's ever lived. See, the Bible teaches us that God made us. Psalm 139, it explains that each and every one of us was knitted together in our mother's womb. God made us, he designed you, he created you. And guess what? He designed you and created you to be with you. He designed you for his presence. He designed you to encounter him and know him and love him and walk through your life with him. He designed you to find your confidence in Him, your energy in Him, your encouragement in Him, your joy in Him, your peace in Him. The reason why so often we don't feel many of those things is because we all rejected Him. The very thing we were designed for, we said, eh, no, no thanks. I like the creation, the creator bit, no thank you very much. And we've all done it. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. For all have sinned, Paul tells us, and fallen short of the glory of God. We were all designed for the very presence of God. We were designed to be with him, to enjoy him, and to be at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. But at some point in our lives, we all said, I don't want that, thanks very much. I'm going to live my life, and how dare you even comment on that. Thank you very much. I might point back at you every now and again when something goes wrong and wonder why you're not doing anything. But for the rest of the time, I'm going to just ignore you because I want to live my life. 
And because of that, the Bible's clear, because of that, we're cut off from God. It's just like the Garden of Eden all over again. We have been put out from the presence of God. We have been exiled from his presence. Exiled from the very premise that helps you understand who you are and whose you are and what you're meant to be doing in your life and to know joy and favor and encouragement and confidence and peace. Removed from the very presence of God where you can experience all those things. Cut off from him and his holiness and justice. Well, how do we get back? How do we ever get back to that glorious presence? Jesus. This whole thing always points to Jesus. See, in Genesis 3.15, when God curses man, Adam and Eve, he explains to them that, listen, there will be a way back into my presence. There will be a way back into the garden. For one will come, and although Satan will bruise his heel, he will crush his head. It's clear one is going to come that's going to help us to get back into the garden. But the hunt is on then through the Old Testament. Who's it going to be? Is it Abraham? No. Is it Isaac? No. Is it Joseph? No. Is it Noah? No. Is it David? Definitely not. Is it Solomon? I don't think so. You know, this list goes on. Who's it going to be? Who is going to be this one that's going to get us back into the presence of God? And you understand in the book of Exodus, this one that's going to get us back is going to be a sacrifice. It's going to be a lamb. It's going to be somebody who's going to give their life up for me so that I can come into the presence of God. Who's it going to be? And year after year after year, all the way through the Old Testament, they're wondering, who is it? When is he going to come? What's he going to be like? And it's John the Baptist who who is the last Old Testament prophet. Doesn't just point to what this person's going to be like. He points right at Jesus. And says, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the whole earth. For Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that every Old Testament sacrifice always pointed to. And Jesus himself very quickly all the way through the gospel says, Yes, I am he. The word has become flesh and it is dwelt, it is literally tabernacled among you. In my flesh, I have come after you. But Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10 verse 45, For even the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even I have come, not to be served, not now. I have come, God incarnate, to give my life as a ransom for many. And so he did. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross. He bled at Calvary as our ransom bearer. And when Jesus hung there on the cross, having declared, it is finished, it says that in that moment, in the temple, the tabernacle over years had become the temple. It had got a fixed site. It said in that moment, when Jesus Christ declared, it is finished, the temple curtains, which had split them off from the Holy of Holies, all the way through all the Old Testament scripture, was now being ripped from top to bottom. Boom, 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 boom. Signaling, you can go in now. Through faith in Jesus, you can go home. Through faith in Jesus, man or woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Through faith in the ransom of Jesus Christ, you can go home. 
You can go back to the presence of God. The one who made you. You can go back to the one whose in presence there is fullness of joy and whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Through Jesus your sins can be forgiven. The Apostle Paul then tells the Ephesians who have put their faith in Jesus. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And he goes on to say this in chapter 2, verse 13. And now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. Brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once far off, you were exiled from the garden, you couldn't come back in, have now been brought near by Jesus himself. He has bled for you. His blood is on the mercy seat. So now go through the curtain and encounter your king. Jesus has paid it all. Isn't it amazing? The tabernacle teaches you far more than you think. It teaches us our way home, our way back into the presence of God. You know, folks, our greatest need is not a bigger paycheck. It's not better health. It's not more obedient kids or marriage or a healthier marriage. Nor is it a more fulfilling job or a better job or more rewarding job. Even though we kid ourselves and think, maybe if I just get this, I'll be happy. No, our greatest need is for the presence of God. Our greatest need is to go home. Our greatest need is to be with the one who made us and knows your frame and your name, knows how you're made. Our greatest need is to encounter him as King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who puts all things right and before whom everything makes sense. You want to experience encouragement? It's found in the presence of God. You want to find joy? It's found in the presence of God. You want to find true peace? It's found in the presence of God. My friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I simply want to encourage you, God really does want to be with you. He really does. It's you that doesn't want to be with him. But he really wants to be with you. And you see that evidence through the entirety of the tabernacle. It's a picture of your way home. How you can get back to him. John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, there's a way back home. There's a way back into the presence of God and his name is Jesus. Put your faith in him as your sacrifice and put your faith in him as your Lord and you can then boldly enter the presence of God. That's the greatest prize of Christianity. It ain't the church. I love the church, but the greatest prize of Christianity is not the church. The greatest prize of Christianity is going into the presence of God, knowing my God and being known by God. That's the prize. He's the greatest thing of all. He's the prize of the gospel. If you don't know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, make him your Lord and Savior today and then let us help you understand Christianity. And I want to encourage you, the first thing I'm going to be doing is saying, listen, go be with God because you can now go be with him. In prayer and in song and the word, encounter your king. He is the source of all joys. He is the source of all pleasures. And my friends, if you're here today and you are a Christian, I want to encourage you 
Never let a day go by where you're not enjoying the privilege of the presence of God. He's the prize. The prize was earned through the death of Jesus. Never let a day go by then where you're not going into the presence of God and saying, hey, I'm here again and I love you. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence there is fullness of joy. Why would you want to waste a day not going in there on the premise of, I can't, I'm too busy? Really? I think it should be the first thing we do. The last thing we do. The thing we do all day. I just want to be with you. Because you're the only one that helps my life to make sense. You know, even as Christians, we all go through times where our lives don't always make sense. You see that demonstrated and illustrated in the Bible. Psalm 73, for example. In Psalm 73, Asaph is having a good old moan. He's looking over the, he's looking over the, sort of the edges of the tabernacle, if you will, and he's looking out and going, man, they all seem to have it pretty sweet, to be honest, and they like own houses and stuff, and they're all really healthy, they're all really beautiful, they all seem to be rich, it all seems to be going great for them, Lord. What about me? He really can't understand. I just don't get it. My life doesn't seem to be working as well as I'd have hoped when I, since I became a Christian. I just don't get it. He was really irritated with the Lord and desperately confused, desperately discouraged, desperately, in effect, depressed before the Lord. And then in verse 17, it says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God. It's when he started spending time with God it started to make sense. At the end of the psalm, there's who says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My friends, if you are in a season where you are discouraged, you are depressed, you are dismayed, you are, you're just struggling in life for whatever reason, I want to encourage you, go and sit in Jesus' presence. He's the only one that changes that. Nothing else. Everything else can stick band-aids over it, but it's only him, the source, where our lives make sense. And if you're here today and you are getting baptised, what a happy day it is for you. I want to encourage you, if you're getting baptised today, never lose sight of the grounds of your acceptance before God. See, as you go in the water today, you're illustrating how you've died with Christ and how you've been raised with Christ. Never, ever forget that that's the grounds of your salvation and it is finished and it is done. You don't have to add anything to your salvation. Jesus has paid it all. He has made a way for you to go home. The Hebrew writer says this in chapter 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It is done. So may all glory go to him. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for these chapters that talk to us about the tabernacle. Lord, you built for us a 
perfect working model that was always designed to help us see our way home. And I pray that we would never look at the tabernacle quite the same ever again. That we would never just read it again thinking, what in the world is a cubit and what has this got to do with me? But would we be amazed that this is a picture of our way home? And Jesus, you have done it for us so that we can return home. Lord, would we be a people then that regularly go into your presence to be with you, to find joy, to find pleasures forevermore? Jesus, you have afforded that for us. So may all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.